The Crow Museum of Asian Art is conspicuously not in Asia. It is housed in downtown Dallas, representing a cultural interchange between peoples of diverse backgrounds. The Crow is unique in that it primarily originated in the private collection of one man, real estate mogul Trammel Crow. Crow's collection was largely formed during his business travels to Asia during the latter half of the 20th century, a time when much of Asia had begun reopening to global markets. As a museum, the Crow is dedicated to promoting learning and interactions with the ideals and customs of the cultures represented in their collections. They work with community and international partners to continue to update their exhibits and educational programs in the interest of diversity, inclusion, and cultural awareness. But how does the Crow navigate the precarious balance that museums now face between cultural appreciation and appropriation? This is History's Adrift, a podcast that examines the stories of historical objects living in places far from their origin. In each episode, we discuss the untold histories of these displaced objects and the complexities of repatriating museum artifacts with scholars from diverse backgrounds. In this episode, we will be discussing the Crow Museum, its contributions to cross-cultural understanding, and its efforts to respect the original homes of its collections. My name is Chris Edwards, and joining me is a group of master's and PhD students from the University of Texas at Dallas who have been investigating these topics. First, we have Shirley Yu, who will talk a little about the Crows and how they came to establish the museum. Shirley, what can you tell me about the museum's founders? Fred Trimmel Crow was an American businessman, real estate developer, and landlord born in Dallas, Texas in 1914. Crow served in the Navy during World War II and upon returning from the war, pursued a career in construction. In the early 1960s, Crow constructed the four Stemmons Towers in Dallas, and he continued to transform the Dallas skyline throughout the years. Tremel and his wife, Margaret, shared a love for Asian art and accumulated a significant collection of treasures. Tremel and Margaret Crow traveled through Asia for many decades, beginning in the 1960s. They began collecting art on their trips and displayed it in their various public buildings and in their homes before establishing the Crow Museum in 1998. The family acquired over 4,000 pieces of Asian art throughout auction houses and private dealers, as well as through the acquisition of the entire collection from other Asian art collectors. The Crow website explains that the Crows wanted to keep the art together for their children and the public, and that desire was the impetus for the museum to be built. Thank you, Shirley. So before we get into specific objects, let's take a minute to look at an overview of Asian art collections in non-Asian countries. David Kashfi and Musab Belouar dug into some specifics about the definitions and examples of Asian art collections. Musab, can you tell us what defines Asian art? Basically, it can be difficult to precisely determine what counts as Asian art, which is taken for granted to simply mean East Asia. In fact, you could extend it to South Asia, Southeast Asia, and Central Asia, or even broader categories like Islamic art. Historically, Asian art collections were strictly confined to Chinese and Japanese art. One extreme example was the Asian art collection pioneer Charles Lang Freer, 
who excluded his collection to only certain epochs in Chinese history because he thought they embodied true Asian art. So Orientalism must have played a role in these art collections to depict the so-called Orient perceived as exotic and mysterious. I think Asian art is still important for museums, but we must be careful with how we label art lest we make flattening generalizations. Thank you, Musab. Asia, pretty big place, huh? Yes, it is. All right, I'm going to bring up David Kashfi now. David, can you tell us some of the prominent Asian art museums in the U.S.? There are many major museums of Asian art in the United States. For instance, in the eastern U.S., there is the Asia Society and Museum in New York, the Smithsonian's National Museum of Asian Art, and the Asian Pacific American Center in Washington, D.C. On the West Coast, there is the Seattle Asian Art Museum, Asian Art Museum of San Francisco, the USC Pacific Asian Museum, Chinese American Museum, and the Japanese American National Museum in the Los Angeles area. And then there is the Crow Museum of Asian Art in Dallas. Those are the nine major museums of Asian art in the United States and are the most well-known and influential museums for Asian art collections in America. Thank you. So some of our team chose to uh, highlight some specific objects from the Crow Collection, and I'd like to bring them in now to talk about some fascinating items from the collection. I'd like to introduce uh, Rachel Catlett, who has selected a great object from the Jade Collection, which is one of the largest collections within the Crow. Rachel, what did you discover slash learn? So the reason that the Jade Collection is one of the largest collections at the Crow is that Jade is significant to East Asian art, especially intricately carved works of Jade in these seemingly impossible shapes. In Eastern cultures, Jade is extremely treasured, almost like gold in the West, and these carvings cross Confucian and Taoist ideals. They show Confucian ideals of discipline, purity of form, and Taoist ideals of connection to nature, balance. Actually, jade carving stretches all the way back to the Neolithic era. As you mentioned, the Crow Museum holds many jade pieces because of its cultural importance to East Asian art. And one such piece is Jade Mountain, which is actually carved from a single massive boulder of nephrite, which is one type of jade. Jade Mountain is actually not green like our most common idea of jade. It's sort of a warm russet brown on the outside and a cool taupey gray on the inside. Jade Mountain's actually been dated to the Qing Dynasty in the 18th century. It's possible that this piece was created during Qianlong's rule, who was a Qing emperor. And that period of his rule is also often considered to be the height of jade carving during that dynasty. The reason that Jade Mountain is so remarkable, besides its enormous size and the fact that it maintains its natural brown skin, is that that skin has been carved into stylized clouds and the interior shows this delicate depiction of scholars in a glade in extremely deep relief, meaning that it goes far into the boulder. The carving shows twisting pine trees, sharp rocks, and it almost looks like a Chinese landscape painting. In Chinese culture, especially during the Qing Dynasty, scholars and other 
wealthy people and intellectual elites would collect these rocks or these carvings. They were a status symbol, but they also had cultural and spiritual significance. The fact that Jade Mountain depicts scholars on a mountain is not an accident. Mountains were considered to be an important place of spiritual ascendance, where scholars, politicians, and other intellectuals and important people could go to practice their Confucian life and ideals and get away from the stresses of daily life. And also, it was a metaphor for ascendance to higher planes of being. Great. So the art says a lot about the people that created it. Jade Mountain encapsulates a lot, yeah, about Chinese culture during the Qing dynasty and also outside of the Qing dynasty in terms of the importance of jade, its sort of metaphorical and symbolic meaning, and the Confucian and Taoist ideals that it represents. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. You're so welcome, Christopher. Awesome. (laughs) All right. So let me bring up uh, Whitney Pisani, who has another spectacular object to tell us about. Hi, Chris. I'm here to talk to you a little bit today about Confucius's miracle lacquer vase. I first learned about this vase because the Crow Museum of Dallas actually features it on their website. And so I learned quite a bit and I was really excited to go and see it for myself. And fortunately, when I got there, I learned it is not currently on display, but it is secured safely within a vault. So hopefully one day it will come back out and be displayed for us to see again. But for now, I can tell you quite a bit about it. The vase itself depicts Confucius, the well-known philosopher and mentor. Part of the allure of this particular vase is the rarity in finding Confucius life scenes on lacquer vases and other artifacts. Now, the exact date of this vase's creation is unknown, but it's thought to have been created sometime between 1644 and 1911 during the Qing dynasty. The vase itself is 40 inches in height, and it highlights six different scenes which serve to represent the idea that Confucius had this very complex belief and awareness between tragedies and corrupt actions. So, for example, one of the most important scenes on this vase depicts Confucius predicting the burning of the noble family shrine of the Lu kingdom due to the absence of moral and ethical holding of the ancestors of the noble family. This scene represents one of Confucius's beliefs, which is a collaboration between heaven and humans. There's also two other scenes which illuminate the life of Confucius on the vase. This vase, like other lacquer pieces was made from the sap of a lacquer tree. The lacquer was favored as it protected the object from deterioration and it was also used to decorate the object. This vase was most likely made by the Imperial Workshop in Beijing and large lacquer vases like this one were often preferred by the noble court. These are just a few of the aspects which make this lacquer vase so spectacular and an interesting piece to examine for this podcast, having traveled far from its origins. Thank you. It's a shame we didn't get to see it. Maybe one day we will. In our previous episode, we touched on the complexity of repatriation and stolen or looted objects. So Ethan LaFond is here to discuss the primary problems of repatriation in Asian art. So Ethan, what can you tell us about efforts to appropriately return or document these objects? There are some fairly strong movements currently going on in the returning of Asian art objects. 
U.S. federal law does provide muscle for the government to force museums to return objects, and they have shown a willingness to do so. For example, in 2020, the U.S. attorney, uh, David Anderson, filed suit against the uh, San Francisco Asian Art Museum. They weren't cooperating with the return requests for Thai artifacts that had an unclear history of import. This response, importantly, gave the benefit of the doubt to Thai interests. Additionally, there have been volunteer organizations such as the Nepal Heritage Recovery Campaign that have indicated there's a grassroots will among Americans to engage in repatriation of Asian art. Thank you. Here to tell us about what's next for The Crow, I brought in Angela Ford, who's another one of my colleagues from UT Dallas. Angela, what's happening next? Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. This May, UT Dallas broke ground on the Edith and Peter O'Donnell Jr. Athenaeum. It's a new cultural district located on approximately 12 acres at the southeastern edge of the campus. The project includes three buildings, uh, the second location for the Crow Museum of Asian Art. Phase one is anticipated to be completed in spring of 2024. Uh, Also a performance hall and a planned museum for the traditional arts of the Americas. In 2019, the Athenaeum began to take shape when the Trammell and Margaret Crow family donated the entire collection of the Trammell and Margaret Crow Museum of Asian Art, together with $25.45 million of support funding for a new museum on the UT Dallas campus. The downtown Dallas Arts District location will continue to present a full exhibition and program calendar. So we're keeping the old museum and getting a new one. Absolutely. That's awesome. As we can see from the example of the Crow Museum, many modern art museums are currently engaging with the questions of how art can exist away from its country of origin in a meaningful and ethical way. It would be easy to write off art museums that display anything other than local art, but examples like the Crow show the value of cultural interaction and exchange. They can help facilitate conversations of art and value from diverse perspectives in a way that benefits both sides. Histories Adrift is a podcast of the University of Texas at Dallas. It was produced by Dr. Nils Romer and his Huma 6300 class during the fall semester of 2022. Our concept team for this episode was Angela Ford, Shirley Yu, Chris Edwards, Musab Belouar, and Ethan LaFond. Our content team for this episode was Whitney Pisani and Rachel Catlett. Our technical team for this episode was Musab Belouar and Greg Shows. Our cover image was created by Angela Ford, and our music is Objet Ah by Greg Shows. Special thanks to Katie Fisher for technical help. 